from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn how investors are affecting real estate in Milwaukee and get some tips for prospective homebuyers. I've never seen it in the 30 years that I've been doing this, how many different hurdles there are for people to become homeowners. We'll tell you about a plan to create a path to homeownership in the Lindsay Heights neighborhood. Plus, learn how a program is working to address inequities in the local commercial real estate industry. Not many people from unrepresented backgrounds understand exactly what commercial real estate is, understand the depth, that it's not just selling houses or single family homes or selling buildings, but that you can can build communities and you can impact a variety of outcomes. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us today. Today's show is all about housing and real estate here in Milwaukee. Last year, Wisconsin topped a list of states where investors are interested in buying properties. And if you've tried to buy a home over the last few years, that probably doesn't surprise you. The market is saturated with people looking for homes, while the number of homes has failed to increase with demand. Add in mounting inflation and this increase in companies buying up single-family homes for investors, and you have a market that Rob Staffslein describes as the worst he's ever seen. Staffslein is the director of single-family lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, which helps people buy homes by teaching them how the process works and how to finance it. Staffslein joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to talk about what the housing market looks like here in Milwaukee. So as you look at the landscape right now for first-time homebuyers, how would you say things have changed in really the last decade, but in your time in this work? Sure. I have been doing this for almost 30 years. And as you say, the, the landscape has changed drastically when you think about, you know, what a house costs. I think that's where you have to almost start the conversation where, Say our parents talk about, well, gosh, back in the 70s, you know, I had an interest rate of 14%, but maybe the house cost $10,000, you know, so it's a different experience for them. And so now uh, we see uh, the increase just over the last 10 years, even, well, maybe even 15 years, because think about 2008 when we had, you know, the recession and we had plummeting house prices and, you know, subdivisions that were largely empty because the builders were struggling to sell them uh, in the market where people were literally foreclosures were uh, just such a common piece of the uh, landscape. And so now fast forward and there's no housing. I mean, it is literally such a different environment today for somebody to try to become a homeowner, not even for the first time home buyer, but definitely when you talk about the education process, when you talk about budget and you talk about, you know, maybe what somebody has to save up for a down payment and and now we have programs uh, that you can buy a house with no down payment. Uh, we have down payment assistance and uh, conventional loan that uh, we can we can loan at a high loan to value so people can become homeowners. But the reality is there's just no houses. It's a struggle. And so when you talk about what it looks like to be a homeowner today, somebody has to be very patient and maybe very flexible as they look at what they think their dream home would be or what their minimum expectations are. That might be quite a gap, but it's really difficult to to buy a house these days. 
I, I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with where they're going, you know, we put in an offer for the house and there were 10, 12, uh, in my situation, there was once, I believe, over 20 bids. And when you have these really ultra competitive environments, as you say, people have to really curtail their expectations. There's a variety of things that people are, are saying, well, I guess I'll maybe look at this neighborhood. I'll maybe look at this space. What are the kinds of frustrations that you're hearing from people who you work with? The most common is, is just what you spoke to, is the whole idea of they're up against 10, 15, sometimes into the 20s of people who are trying to buy the exact house that they want to buy. And to the point where you talk about people might say, you know, I'm not even really worried about so much what the house looks like. I want to be in this neighborhood. Uh, now, if they can be a little more flexible and they say, okay, I don't necessarily need to be in this neighborhood, but I have to have at least three bedrooms or I have to have at least two bathrooms or and then they might have to be more flexible just because of budget constraints in terms of where they live and have to move further away. That creates all sorts of different different issues as it relates to how long does it take them to get to work? Do they have remote work opportunities? Uh, you know, the transportation issues for people who might have one car in their household versus two cars. And I mean, there's all sorts of challenges for people who don't live close to work. As for instance, my daughter doesn't drive, so she has to think about how is she going to get to work and uh, whether it's Uber or public transportation. And I think uh, the challenges around not only, you know, the how you get to work, but then, you know, uh, these neighborhoods that are close to workplaces. These are all the, you know, I, I, I put down some talking points as it relates to the challenges around people trying to buy houses these days. And uh, it's, it's I've never seen it in the 30 years that I've been doing this, how many different hurdles there are for people to become homeowners. One of the things that we encountered personally with a home that we were looking at and that a lot of people have encountered is we weren't just bidding against other people. We were bidding against companies. There were companies that were looking at these single family homes. And uh, a recent report actually found Wisconsin is on top of the list of places where people are looking for investment properties. Have you seen this uh, in, in our market? We have. And it's definitely when you talk about the barriers to becoming a homeowner, not only are you going up against uh, your peers, but then investors who want to scoop up these houses and rent them out. They have a lot of capital to be able to accomplish this. And they can maybe buy those fixer-upper opportunities that, you know, back in the day, a first-time homebuyer might buy a house at you know, doesn't have the best carpet or needs some paint or, uh, you know, windows or, you know, something that, you know, they could maybe either do inexpensively or uh, do themselves. But now these investors are scooping up these houses and not only a house, sometimes blocks of houses, you know, neighborhoods where they're uh, going in and trying to scoop up large uh, numbers of homes and then fixing them up and renting them out and maybe not even fixing them up that much. And so it is definitely something that we've seen. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have seen many people become homeowners. I mean, as a, for instance, just in the last two months, we have seen uh, many people become homeowners uh, here at WIDA. We've funded over, almost 500 loans just in July and August for almost $100 million just here in Wisconsin. So there are still people buying homes for sure uh, and becoming first-time homebuyers. But uh, to your point, it is a challenge when you're up against not only your peers, but investors. When it comes to investors and these corporate interests, 
What does it mean for people, families, uh, when they're looking to buy a home? As you said, these are often well-funded groups. One of the things that also seems to become an issue is that they can waive things. Uh, so most of the time you're going to get your home inspected. You're going to get, um, you know, may- maybe you need to uh, do it on contingency. So you're buying this home, but you also need to sell your home. What are some of the benefits that a corporation has that the average person doesn't? You know, that, that's a great question. Off the top of my head, I would say the biggest thing they have going for them is the capital time where they can maybe move fast and uh, they have cash and they can get it wrong a little bit where, let's say my daughter was out shopping for a house and she wanted to think about it because it's a big decision. It's the biggest purchase that most people are going to make. And she's thinking about it. Well, she doesn't have time to think about it because other people are moving fast. They understand the market. They swoop in there. They put in a cash offer. They don't need an inspection to your point. They don't need an appraisal if they're paying cash. Where if it was my daughter, I would want her to have an inspection to make sure she's getting safe and stable housing, to make sure that you know there's no issues with the foundation and it has a good roof and there's no hidden surprises. Well, in that scenario, somebody who's a large corporation and wants to just buy it, they don't have to think about that as much. And so, you know, there's definitely uh challenges for people when you think about what it even looked like maybe five years ago for people who could not only think about it, bring their parents to take a look at it with them, have it inspected, ask the sellers to make uh, some improvements to that home. If there's something cracking the foundation, roof that needs to be done, there used to be a lot more give and take in the, in the buying and selling process where now it's a seller's market. And very often there are no inspections and very often cash buyers do you get preferential treatment? So it's definitely a challenge. Now, we'll, of course, get into how WIDA helps uh, first-time homebuyers, homebuyers in general. But before we talk about that, what is some of the advice you find yourself giving to people that you've tailored to the kind of unique market we're seeing right now? You know, so WIDA is a provider of home loans to lenders around Wisconsin. So I mean, ultimately, and this doesn't sound like uh, the best advice, but it's patience. It's being thoughtful about what a home is going to be to you, not only for your budget, but to the point you made about a neighborhood. How does it function in your everyday life? Because people can get a little skewed by, well, I found this amazing house. I'm sure it's 40 minutes out of town, but uh, I don't mind the drive and and, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. Well, then you find yourself in a position where, you know, somebody's caught in traffic, they spend two hours in their car. Um, there's the cost of, you know, gas in the car itself and parking. And um, so there's these sort of unintended consequences of trying to maybe be too flexible. And I feel like our lenders do a really nice job of uh, giving people good advice and coaching around what it means to be a homeowner, uh, the true costs of being a homeowner, because a lot of people are renters who are going into becoming a homeowner. And uh, you have to go in eyes wide open in terms of what it really costs to be a homeowner. And, um, uh, but patience, I mean, in this marketplace, and I mean, as much as I talk about the investor piece being a challenge, it's almost always where a seller truly wants to sell their house to a person who's going to love their house. I mean, there's a lot of that. And maybe that's a Wisconsin Midwest sort of (laughs) mentality, but truly, I mean, I sold uh, my house two years ago. And these people took a picture of their kids underneath a trellis uh, of these uh, roses that we had. And they said, we hope this is our future home. 
And, you know, we had like 15 offers, but the picture of those kids under the trellis, when all things were pretty similar in terms of, you know, the sale price, <laughs> that did a lot for us. And if some corporation was giving us a little bit more money, that wouldn't have, you know, skewed our decision. Uh, so I think it still is a personal process. For sure. Those love letters can, uh, oh, man. can really... <laughs> <laughs> they get you. <laughs> uh, as you mentioned, WIDA does, you know, coaching with home buyers. What are some of the other ways that WIDA works with home buyers to uh, get them prepared to buy a home, but then, yeah, ultimately get a house? So we uh, have a partnership with the Federal Home Loan Bank where we are financing some of the uh, local homebuyer counselors here in Wisconsin. There's there's nine of them that are actually participating. And so we, in conjunction with these housing counseling institutions, are you know creating uh, more opportunity for people to get home buying counseling. And people start at such different places when they're talking about becoming homeowners. Um, there are some people who just think, oh, I could never be a homeowner. Nobody in my family has ever owned a home. We've always rented. And there's some people who they've thought about it their whole life and they've saved up money and they just haven't found just the right house. And, and they go into these counseling sessions really just to verify what they probably already know. And so we support those activities as well as, as I said, we go to, to lender events uh, as, as a WIDA uh, sponsor and we present different things around budgets, what it means to be a homeowner, sample uh, payments so that people have a sense of what it might look like when you're paying your taxes and your insurance and your principal and interest. And so I think the education part is really important so that people uh, are set up for success becoming homeowners. All right. Well, Rob, thank you so much for speaking with me today and sharing so much of your work. Well, it's my pleasure. Rob Staffsleen is the Director of Single Family Lending at WIDA, the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority. He spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers last year. With rent costs rising across the city, a new approach to combating gentrification and displacement is happening in the Lindsay Heights neighborhood on Milwaukee's north side. Last summer, the Milwaukee Community Land Trust put four houses in Lindsay Heights up for sale with the intention that they go to low-income, long-term residents of the neighborhood. Lake Effect Sam Woods met up with Lamont Davis, the executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, to learn more about how a land trust works and how it allows homeowners to build wealth while also keeping the neighborhood affordable. While a lot of people I think are familiar with terms like affordable housing or maybe even mixed-use development that also try to combat displacement in an area with rising costs and rising rent, I'm not sure as many people are familiar with the term community land trust. So Lamont, as executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, I want to ask you first off, what is a land trust and, and what makes it uh, unique? Great question. Community land trusts are a way for people who've largely been excluded from the opportunity to own a home to get into home ownership. And the way we do that is by entering into a two-party um, home ownership situation. Uh, buyers would own the house and the improvements, and then we would retain title to the land. And so our partners via CDC has produced this great unit of housing, and when we find a buyer, um, they're going to buy the house and the improvement, and then we're going to buy the land. 
Can you explain a little bit more about how this relationship works between um, the land trust owning the land and the homeowner owning the home that sits on the land? Like, how does how does that work? Really, the situation won't be too much different than traditional home ownership. Buyers who buy into the Milwaukee Community Land Trust would have an opportunity to use the land as they see fit. Um, they, of course, can do the same with the house and the improvements. Uh, the goal is really to create permanent affordability um, in this unit. So it's a pretty much a pay-it-forward model. And so there are some things that they agree to when they become a land trust buyer. One, that they're going to be owner-occupied throughout their term in that house. And then two, they're going to agree to a resale restriction that doesn't allow them to get uh, full appreciation of the investment. Uh, but they do appreciate an increase of 1.25% annually which is in line with what traditional real estate kind of appreciates at about 2%. So we wanted to make sure that people could appreciate on this investment, but not outpace or outstrip the market. And that's what we see a lot of times, particularly over the last couple of years, uh, where homes are selling for way more than what the market, um, what they should be selling in the market. You know, thinking of Lindsay Heights or, or really any uh, other neighborhoods across Milwaukee as well, a big contributor to rising rents is investors coming in and using the property as an investment as opposed to living in the home themselves. And so can you talk a little bit more about why that, that owner-occupant part of the agreement is so important when it comes to keeping a home affordable? Sure. We don't want to see displacement or gentrification in these neighborhoods, but we do know that during the last great recession, our housing recessions in the 2000s, what we saw for every three homes that were sold in the central city, only one came back owner-occupied. And so that's a big problem where we're seeing um, less and less people be owner-occupied in uh, the metropolis. And so with the land trust, we felt it was really important that we maintain that you have to be owner-occupied. Um, and that means you or a family member will always need to own or occupy the unit. So there could be a situation in the future where a buyer maybe their kids get to the age of maturity and they continue to occupy the unit. Um, but you can leave this home to your kids. Um, we're really uh, focused on seeing a neighborhood full of homeowners and not having um, renters. Um, we think this is really important. And particularly in Lindsay Heights, who's seen some level of gentrification, Land Trust really believes that people who normally have always lived in these neighborhoods should get an opportunity to own in these neighborhoods. And so hence, um, a big part of what we do is try to bring the affordability to a price point where we can serve people who make somewhere between uh, thirty and fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, that's about half of what the area median income is for uh, Milwaukee, um, but we think this is a great price point. All of our homes, we want buyers who are not spending more than thirty-three percent of their income on housing costs. And so getting to kind of the land trust model generally, not just not just in Milwaukee, but, you know, you're not the only ones doing this in the country, in the world, right? There's there's hundreds of examples um, throughout the United States, thousands more throughout the world, um, even some here in Wisconsin, both in urban areas and rural areas. Um, can you talk about uh, the land trust model, not just how it's, you know, working in Milwaukee with these, you know, starting with these homes, but... Um, in, in general, how kind of it's, it is working worldwide. 
Yeah, the land trust model is just exploding. Uh, land trusts, uh, uh, specifically community land trusts, um, have been around for about 40 years or so. Uh, these land trust models uh, have really started to explode as we see uh, in affordability and home ownership on the West Coast and the East Coast. Um, they're in 43 different states. Wisconsin does have a few examples of land trusts. Um, Madison has a land trust. La Crosse has a land trust. And then areas like Stevens Point, Adams County, even Wauwatosa are looking at having a land trust model because we have two things um, against us. One, uh, property values have risen so sharply over the last year, and that coincides with the fact that interest rates have doubled from just a year ago. And we're really creating a situation right now in the market where affordability is slipping away from so many uh, folks, individuals, and families are largely being excluded from the opportunity to own a home. And a lot of that is uh, because of income. And we can't do a lot about income, um, but we can bring the price of home ownership down to an affordable level. And that's what we're doing here by targeting people who make between thirty and $50,000 a year. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, you, you've talked about having to buy homes when prices are rising in order to keep them affordable, right? And that's going to take money. It's going to take funding. Um, what are your primary funding sources as an organization that allows you to do this work? Good question. So we've been well received by the funding community. The city of Milwaukee um, has uh, been a good champion of the land trust model, particularly Alderman Stamper. Um, we've also seen good support from philanthropy, uh, Zilber Family Foundation, Greater Milwaukee Foundation, the Otto Bremer Trust, uh, the Catholic Campaign for Human Development. A lot of uh, philanthropy has stepped up and said, you know what, this is a good model, we believe in it, and we're going to fund you. What's the future look like for MCLT, the Milwaukee Community Land Trust, and how are you all looking to either you know, expand or morph, change, um, just move into the future? One thing about land trusts is that we probably will never be the dominant form of home ownership in a community. Um, we want to be complementary to other forms of home ownership, uh, but we're really looking at folks who um, would largely never be able to afford a home. Um, and we think our future is bright, but we are challenged with a couple things. Uh, one, this is a, a heavy investment on the front end. Uh, community land trusts need um, money to develop a unit, and then we also need money to buy down the affordability of a unit. And so you often see us putting um, upwards of $200,000 to make this unit affordable. Um, but the good thing about it is that that upfront investment creates a permanent affordability in that unit uh, that pays for it for future generations. Um, the challenge is going to be continuing to raise those deep subsidies, uh, but also getting people educated about what a land trust is. Uh, so it's important that we do outreach like what we're doing here at Lake Effect uh, because there are realtors who uh, see our transactions and may say this is not a good deal for their clients. Um, there's home buying counseling agencies who would look at this and say, okay, let me make sure this is the best fit for my clients. Um, but we really just need to continue to fundraise and also educate the community at large about what a land trust is and the benefits of the land trust. Well, Lamont, thank you so much again for joining us on Lake Effect. Uh, truly appreciate your time. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on Lake Effect. This was enjoyable.
Lamont Davis is the executive director of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. He spoke with Lake Effect Sam Woods last summer. The four homes that were put up for sale in Lindsay Heights last year have sold. The Milwaukee Community Land Trust has a goal of adding 24 more homes this year. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. You may remember the series WUWM aired called Precious Lives, about gun violence and youth in the Milwaukee area. Later in the show, we'll follow up with a man who was featured in Precious Lives in 2016 while he was incarcerated. Today, he's out of prison and sharing his story with the goal to help others. But first, we'll learn about a program that's working to address inequities in the local commercial real estate industry. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Less than 3% of new commercial real estate development is led by people of color. There are many factors that contribute to this, including historical and systemic barriers to access for underrepresented developers. Baker Tilly, a tax and assurance firm, is trying to build equity and increase the number of underrepresented commercial real estate developers through its DEVELOP initiative. Through education, resources, and relationships, DEVELOP is designed to help Black-owned development firms tackle the complexities of affordable housing, grow their business, and build diversity in the industry. To learn more about the program, I'm joined by DEVELOP Program Director Matthew Pichel, Don Bernards, Baker Tilly's partner in charge of affordable housing and transactions practice, and Anthony Casey, principal at KG Development Group, a local real estate group. Pichel begins by explaining what the key goals of DEVELOP are. The three immediate pillars of DEVELOP are access to capital, access to social capital, and access to affordable housing subject matter expertise. And really, we started having more formal conversations in May of 2020 in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd about what did it mean to take this kind of holistic approach to think more critically about what we as a team could do better for our clients and what additional value could we drive to them. Um, and so from that became, okay, we recognize consistently that these are the issues that our developers are having. And so if we we can reach into our Baker Tilly Rolodex and really be the convener and connector through conferences, through formal and informal introductions to help our clients gain access to the resources that they need. Um, and so I would say kind of just to, to further affirm Don's point, it's really about leaving communities and our clients better than we found them. I'm hoping you can touch upon those three pillars a little bit more, because in, in the landscape today, less than 3% of new commercial real estate development is led by people of color and other underrepresented groups. So what kind of barriers attribute to this extremely low percentage? And if you want to speak on it from a Baker Tilly perspective, and then Anthony, if you want to follow up with your personal experience. I'll just kind of start with with financial resources. You know, a lot of these programs are, you know, 25, 30 years old. We talk a lot about loan counseling tax credits, but other community development. And there's, there's underwriting policies and procedures that have been in place. There's some standards. And if you don't meet these boxes, you know, if you don't have, it's quite frankly, you need capital. You need a million dollars of cash in the bank and you need $5 million of overall net worth. If you don't have that, it's a large, large barrier to entry. And how many, you know, people and, and, and underrepresented uh, communities 
have that access to capital. So that is one of the biggest barriers. And we've been working uh, both internally, but with many stakeholders, too many to name lenders and, and other uh, financing professionals to really kind of step back and look at this. You know, do I need kind of these old underwriting standards? Let's look at the risks of the transactions, the quality of the the, the experience the uh, the developers bringing in others. So, so that's one thing we're really addressing is kind of that access to, to financial resources. Um, I'll turn over to Matt, the other. Yeah, and then from, I think from the to the point you made, Arvi, about statistics of diversity in our industry, I think that there are just not, not many people from unrepresented backgrounds understand exactly what commercial real estate is, understand the depth of that it's not just selling houses or single family homes or selling buildings, but that you can you can build communities and you can impact a variety of outcomes. And so I think that has to do with there are not a lot of you know undergraduate real estate programs. It's harder for people to not see people that are real estate developers in their own community and have access to developers in their community to learn more about the industry and be more informed. And so I think that's one of those things that we as a team step back and said, okay, how can we solve this problem? What does it look like for us to address not only the current support and resources for the developers that are in this industry right now, but how do we increase the talent pipeline of diverse talent in this industry starting in high school and starting in college? And so we've had the opportunity, we're currently sponsoring two high school interns on our team. We've sponsored two college-aged interns in the past year as well, because we understand that not only is it investing in kind of this generation that's really stepping into development and wants to build, but really to shape the minds of the youth to help them understand the opportunities that are available to them in the commercial real estate industry as well. So Anthony, can you share a bit more about, you know, what were your thoughts of commercial development before you even got into this field? Like what made you interested? And once you were trying to get into it, what kind of difficulties were you facing or what kind of things were you realizing? Like, oh, I need to learn more about say federal tax credits, or oh, I'm sure there's a ton to navigate here. Yes. Yes. Thank you, Audrey. And, uh, and Don and Matt is 100% correct. And just to even take a step back for myself personally, uh, you know, when I was 16, I was on my way to prison, uh, facing 20 years. Uh, that was just part of the environment I grew up in. Across the country, you know, a lot of black communities, folks are just not exposed to other things that's outside of there. You know, kind of what you see on TV and movies, sometimes what you see out your front door in these communities, and that becomes your reality. Uh, so luckily, you know, uh, God had a different plan for me. Uh, I was able to, you know, avoid going to prison. I went to college, got into the, uh, you know, got to work in construction as a project engineer, got into the Acre program. That was when I was first really exposed to commercial real estate. And I'm back in like 2016, 17. I still smell like Acre a little bit on me, like, you know, but uh, once I got in, you know, Acre, it was like a light just went off my head, like, wow, like, you know, I can actually be a real estate developer. But in order to become that is, you know, what you do at the acre, you got to meet folks like Don, meet folks like Matt, then they expose you to other folks that's in the industry, whether they're, you know, legal side, uh, equity partners, debt providers, other developers who may partner with you. And, you know, it's going back to exposure. A lot of folks are not exposed. And I'm glad that back until we had these programs like Devil Up, that's exposing a lot of people to the industry of commercial real estate. Because some people don't think this is a thing. You know, uh, especially in the black community that, hey, we can be real estate developers and maybe unaware of a lot of different programs and resources out here that can help you, you know, to that next level. But for me, it's been everything. And uh, Don and Matt and Baker Tilly, what they're doing uh, is really changing the game. Can you share some examples of kind of some of the stuff that this program has helped you walk through and, and what kind of projects it's helping you work on currently? 
Oh, most definitely. Uh, you can basically say everything from A to Z. Uh, when you uh, have somebody like Berkey Tilly with, with you, it really makes your debt, your equity people comfortable because they know you have some you know, expertise with you. And then just going throughout the process, you really get to learn, you know, what is good underwriting, you know, from Berkey Tilly. Because, you know, once they send over their performance, you can kind of, I use that as like a, 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 like a, you know, like a tool to educate myself on like, you know, okay, this is how my expenses should look. You know, these how my, uh, you know, reserves should look. This is how my income assessment should look. And then, you know, being able to email Don, you know, email Matt, Ethan, Caitlin, you know, they get back right back with you, hop on a call, walk you through the questions you may have. And uh, so like I said, we're currently working on um, two projects, actually three projects with Baker Tilly uh, right now. One that involves historical tax credits, another one we submitted an RFP, and the one in uh, Nevada, we're working with a church. And I said, really having Baker Tilly with you uh, really makes you extremely more comfortable because, you know, you have somebody that's, you know, watching over your shoulder. And again, you're learning with Baker Tilly and, and they take that time to kind of, you know, go through each step and each detail with you. To get into a bit more about the landscape, I know Baker Tilly is based in Chicago, but it includes Milwaukee and Madison. So I'm hoping, can you share a bit more about how Milwaukee's developing landscape is and, and what are the main issues or needs you are trying to address here in Milwaukee? You know, I think, again, you know, we talked a lot about the Acre Associates and Commercial Real Estate Program. Give a lot of uh, credit uh, credit to uh, Mark Epley, who's a professor at Marquette University in 2004, realized the same, you know, I think it's the same sobering facts, Audrey. You know, I don't know what the percentage was in 2004, but, well, it's only 3% today, so what was it in 2004? And so, you know, there's a lot of good work done. Milwaukee's just been fantastic. If you look at the landscape, development landscape today in Milwaukee versus, you know, 10, 15 years ago, it's, it's a different world. Some of the leading developers, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're new to this industry, uh, you know, five, 10 years ago. So I think that's an exciting change. I'm sure Anthony has some feedback on that too, or Matt. Just to kind of go off that, I mean, I think that was one of the reasons that when we wanted to host the first annual develop event, it had to be in Milwaukee, right? Because we, we understood that Milwaukee was a home market for us, but that it was also this beacon of underrepresented developer talent as a product of the ACO program, as a product of the formal investment into kind of developing this pipeline of talent in in the state of Wisconsin um, to do both community development work, economic development work, as well as as well as commercial real estate. Well, yes, I agree. And I think just again having Baker Tilly there uh, and then this Dev Up program, you know, is really uh getting folks, you know, involved. You know, whether you're because uh, for Acre, you know, you gotta take a test. You gotta it's not like, you know, Acre hosts workshops or things like that. You actually got to, you know, be a part of the actual, the program in order to, you know, kind of learn. But versus with Baker Tilly, you know, they have workshops, webinars, you know, this Devil Up program where you can actually come and learn, you know, and really see if there's something that you want to uh, really get into. And I think, uh, too, like I said, to Don's point, uh, Milwaukee is really changing. Uh, you know, it's a ton of developers come out of the Acre, but still, you still need that, that mentor or that person that you can call on. But again, I think that's, you know, what they care about and they want to help serve. And uh, I think just having Baker Tilly in the community is going to uh, bring out more developers, you know, just from the even high school level going into Acre and going into careers, you know, into commercial real estate. So I'm pretty excited for the future of uh, Milwaukee. Matthew, you mentioned you had your first develop event in Milwaukee this past spring. What kind of community feedback did you get from that? You know, did it show you what's going in the right direction with this program? And perhaps did you notice anything that needs to be adjusted as you continue to talk to developers in the community and continue to build on this program? That's a great question. So first and foremost, we got fantastic feedback from the stakeholders in the city of Milwaukee. Um, The question was kind of, you know, can we do this every year? And, you know, 
sometimes I think it, we kind of operate in this vacuum where you don't necessarily understand or appreciate all the things that are happening around you or just how many people that look like you are doing meaningful work and transformative work. And so to walk into a room of 125 plus commercial real estate professionals and have 80% of the room be people of color was very powerful. And it was very powerful for a wide variety of reasons. And so I think not only was the quality of the content there, but it was also, you know, people looking around and saying, I've never seen a room like this before. I lived in Milwaukee my whole life. I never seen a room like this before from people that were focused on real estate. And so I think it kind of helped us understand the power of what we're doing, not only for the city of Milwaukee, but really as we continue to think about what does it mean to be, to Don's language earlier, this convener and connector of stakeholders from across the country that are interested in promoting equity and creating opportunity for those from underrepresented backgrounds in, in commercial real estate. Matthew Pichel is DEVELOP's program director. Don Bernards is Baker Tilly's partner in charge of affordable housing and transactions practice. And Anthony Casey is the principal at KG Development Group. We want to hear from you as we gear up to cover local elections and the presidential election in November. You can have a say in our 2024 election coverage by filling out our election survey. You can find a link at wuwm.com. What you tell us will help inform the stories you hear on Lake Effect and WUWM. We'll take one more break and then hear from a local man who was incarcerated as a teenager to learn how his life has changed since being released. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Precious Lives was a series about gun violence and youth in the Milwaukee area created by 371 Productions that aired on WUWM. In 2016, a Precious Lives story featured Garland Hampton, a man serving a life sentence for a crime he committed as a teenager. Hampton was released on April 14, 2020, and now lives and works in Milwaukee. He shares his story of redemption, advocacy, and economic empowerment to inspire others to change their lives. He joins me now to talk about his life post-prison. In my journey of me being incarcerated from prison to out here, there came a point in time when I was incarcerated where I was faced with a decision to make. Either you grow old or you make the necessary changes that you need to make to be a better person. You know, growing old, you don't change. You stay the way you uh, were when you came in. Growing up, you evolve, you elevate, um, you learn things, you arm yourself with certain tools that you believe will help you be successful out here in society upon release. So um, that opportunity for me, I took full advantage of it. Uh, I knew what I had to do for me because I was all I had. And I knew at that point I had to be in my own best interest. So I decided to grow up as opposed to just growing old in prison. How are you feeling after leaving prison and having to essentially start over as an adult in a place you hadn't been a part of? I imagine it's not an easy transition because you went to prison at 15. How did you feel making that transition initially? I was a little scared. But what made me scared was me feeling vulnerable. 
I felt like the world was going to swallow me up. Here I am. I'm fresh. I'm new. I don't know about none of this stuff that's going on. But more so, what was scary for me was I left this world as a kid. That's a completely different outlook on what life is. So for me, it was like everything was brand new. The people that loved and cared for me when I was a kid, they had all passed away while I was incarcerated. You know, so in my mind, it wasn't what am I going to do. It was now was the time. This is what you prayed for. This is what you dreamed for. This is your moment. This is the opportunity that's here for you. Now you have to see it. So I hit the ground running. Um, the first thing I had to do, I said, I got to get employed. I had many jobs through temp services. Some places turned me down because I was out of prison, on parole, and the main thing was you don't have a work history. Others was, were like, well, if we hire you, people finding out that you are a convicted felon, you, you're on parole, and you went to prison for murder, how do you think that's going to sit with them? You know, so it was all these hurdles, but I knew that this is what I was going to be faced with before I even came out here. With me constantly selling myself and presenting myself in a way in which I know I could be used to help whatever company or whatever business grow, somebody's going to take a chance. I just have to find that somebody who's willing to take that chance. I went to a place called Big Step, WRTP. They help guys coming out of prison with landing a job, chasing their dreams of a career, getting driver license, getting CDL license, whatever you need, they help you. I went to them, landed a job in construction, and boom, and here I am on a power driver, going into my second year as an apprentice. Been working for my construction company ever since. Um, those guys have been, well, have and still is, amazing. Um, they helped me along the way. They continue to help me. And, you know, it, it wasn't, a, it was never a thing of you being discriminated against because you, you you're out on parole, none of that. It was, you know, okay, you're part of the family now, you're part of this brotherhood, whatever we can help you with, we're going to help you. So it's been a blessing. Uh, I began to say to myself, you know what, I, I can, I got a life now. I, I was starting to feel, you know, like I was living, and I had built something for myself. Um, and that's that was all I wanted, was that opportunity to make a life for myself outside of the job and finding a stable job and the hurdles you face doing that to gain financial stability. Another thing you've worked hard to do is own your own home. And you've worked with some local banks to secure grants on revitalizing black communities in addition to being a homeowner yourself. So can you share a bit more about this process? You talk about the difficulties you face finding a job. Did you face those same kind of things trying to show banks like I am a good candidate to be a homeowner? Oh, wow. Now, that was one time in which I dropped my head. I had went to the several banks, was turned down. I couldn't even open up an account. So I ended up getting a checking account and a savings account with U.S. Bank through the Department of Corrections. Because the Department of Corrections, U.S. Bank handled all of the financial uh, accounts for prisoners in the state of Wisconsin. So even then, it was rough for me. They said, well, you're no longer in the Department of Corrections, sir. 
you can't open up an account with it. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. You have my money, my release account, my savings account. You know, you have my money in your bank already. I'm already established with you all. Well, no, sir, you're not established with us. The Department of Corrections are. So here I am, released from prison, calling back to the prison, telling them to call U.S. Bank to vouch for me. Well, once you was released, you're out of our custody, you know, you're on your own now. Wow. So then I had a hard time with getting the little money that I had saved up for myself from working prison jobs while I was in prison. So I go to my parole agent. We wrestle with the bank and so on and so forth. And then we finally get to break. U.S. Bank just turned the little money that I did have. They said, okay, they took the Department of Correction name off the account and put my name on it. So now here is my first start. Now I want to buy a home. Can't get a loan from U.S. Bank. Can't get a loan from BMO Harris. Nobody would take a chance on that. So I was sitting at home one day, and I told my fiance, I said, you know what? One day I'm going to buy us a house. I said, it's not going to go like this, Trav. So she laughed at me. I said, you laughing, but I'm serious. And shortly after, she was on her phone, and she said, baby, they have this open house. Let's go check it out. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to that, no. She's like, come on, you never know. So I said, okay, I'm going to go. I met a lady there by the name of Miss McLeod. And she just welcoming me in like this. It's like, this don't happen. She did a sophomore. She's like, you know what? You qualify. I said, qualify for what? She said, our program. So she went on to explain to me about, Chase she's giving you the $5,000 loan grant and so on and so forth you to possibly go on homework. And we go on with the process. And she said, congratulations. She took my hand. And at that point, I was like, wow. It was one of the best experiences ever of my life. So I went through the whole process. Not only did I qualify for that through Chase Bank, there was another program through the city of Milwaukee, the first-time homeowner program. And so my fiance, she said, so, you still wanted to stay at home, huh? You didn't want to come. And I looked at her and I smiled. She said, I told you. She said, look, you never know if you don't try. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I never thought that I would be able to come home and, you know, accomplish the, the, the things that I have accomplished, um, being that I was in prison. You are working on building sustainable wealth for yourself and your family. That's one tool you're using to build your life post-prison. And in the Precious Lives episode you were featured on, it ended with how you share your story with dreams of working with young people in Milwaukee if you were ever released to hopefully reach the people who might be suffering the same way that you did. Can you share how you're doing that today and, and what kind of conversations you've had with others so far? Well, first, I had to be willing to accept my past. And so with me coming and grips with all of that, at this point, I'm ready to help somebody else. Because now I know how they feel, I know what they're going through, and I can relate. So what I do now is I work alongside a organization here in the city of Milwaukee called uh, 414 Life. They are a uh, violent interruption uh, a group of guys or organization that you know, try and mediate or hash out situations before it gets bad, you know, to where one end up in jail, lose their life, fight, or whatever. You know, uh, 
just peace, bring down the crime rate in our city, and help those who are in need of help, uh, in particular our youth of today. And I talk to a lot of kids, and I let them know that, look, at any given moment, with the snap of a finger, you can make a decision or a choice that change your life for the worse forever. And I share my story with them. I let them know, hey, look, I've been there. Homeless, poor, abused, raped, physically beaten, mentally beaten, spiritually beaten, in prison as a kid. I've been through it all. I've been there. And a lot of kids feel that they don't have nobody they can talk to. Kids these days have the responsibility of an adult, but as a kid. And so they are being robbed and deprived of life before their life has even began. And that's where I was at. And I was forced to survive in an environment in which I knew nothing about. I had to learn these things. And I try to be a resource to present that to these juveniles that's out here who feel like there's nobody listening to me. Where do I go? There is that opportunity for you. You have to go get it. But how can I go get something if it was never presented to me? How can I go get it if I don't know what's there? Then once I get there, tell me how this works. I need you to take me by the hand and show me. So I try and be there for them. You know, it, it's, it's about giving back. This is my way of giving back. You know, and I said that at one point in time, I was part of the problem with the destruction uh, in some of these neighborhoods in this city. You know, even though I was just a kid, you know, if I help mess it up, I just want the chance and opportunity to help clean it up. Well, Garland, I want to thank you so much for continuing to share your story. I'm I'm honored that we got a chance to follow up with you, you know, since 2016 and learn about what's happened since then. And I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you. And I, I really do appreciate it. This means a lot to me. And like I said, you know, from the cradle to the grave, you know, this is my mission. This is what I would do up until the day God called Garland Hampton was featured in episode 100 of the series Precious Lives. Today, he's living and working in Milwaukee and works with the organization 414 Life. You can find more information and listen to the original Precious Lives episode he's in at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Chuck Kornbach, Susan Bentz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News team this week. Jason Reevy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valera Navarro-Viegas is our digital editor. Trapper Shep wrote our theme music. On Monday, we'll speak with the UW professor who developed voting maps using a computer algorithm that were thrown out by the state Supreme Court. If you've missed any of Lake Effect this week, you can find all of our conversations at wuwm.com. If you'd like to take the show on the go, simply download the Lake Effect podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.